containers have improved deployments and resource utilization. Kubernetes created a platform to manage those containers and orchestrate them into distributed applications. In today's episode, we explore tools that improve the workflow of the application developer who is working with Kubernetes. These tools include Helm, Draft, and Brigade. Helm is a package manager for Kubernetes, which allows users to find, share, and use software that is built for Kubernetes. The unit of installation for Helm is a Helm chart. Installing a Helm chart can simplify the deployment of a database, a load balancer, or continuous integration. Draft is a tool for simplifying the containerization process. When a developer runs Draft, a Docker file is created to containerize the application, and a Helm chart is created to enable the application to be easily deployed. Brigade is a tool for creating and running Kubernetes workflows. Brigade allows for event-driven scripting on top of Kubernetes. Chat ops, continuous integration systems, and complex big data pipelines can all be defined with Brigade. Brigade's an exciting topic of discussion because it's a higher-level tool on top of Kubernetes. In some ways, it's similar to the serverless on Kubernetes systems that we have covered in the past. Ralph Squalache is a principal program manager with Microsoft, and he works on containers and Linux and cloud products. Ralph joins the show to talk about how developing with containers has changed in the last few years and how it will continue to evolve in the near future. Full disclosure, Ralph works at Microsoft, which is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Ralph Squalachi is a principal program manager at Microsoft. Ralph, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. It's been a few years since containers have become popular. Containers have improved in a lot of ways, and they've helped developers improve their deployment workflows. They've improved many other aspects of development. But what are the shortcomings of the development process that still exist for an engineer working with containers today? Oh, uh, there's still plenty. Naturally, containers give developers and system admins and operators a tremendous amount of flexibility, speed, agility, and so forth. Unfortunately, with every step and every technological leap that allows us to do more faster, it turns out the next thing you do is more faster. And that means you need a whole bunch of extra tooling to handle the additional complexity that doesn't exist yet. And that's the first thing. And the second thing is, is that until the tooling helps you do your work in a way that's coherent, you now need to master containment, service composition, other things that have nothing to do with software development per se, but really have to do with getting your container of software running somewhere. Whether you're a developer in a small team or a startup or whether you're in an organization, those two areas are the focus of work right now because the containment itself makes sense. We understand how to do it. It works really, really well, but those two areas need to catch up. I think a lot of this will come with improvements in tooling, and you are familiar with a lot of the tools. You work on a lot of the tools in the Kubernetes landscape. Let's talk about some of those tools that the audience may or may not be familiar with. I'd like to start with Helm. Helm is a package manager that allows users to manage groups of resources. Before we talk about Helm specifically, let's just talk about the idea of a package manager. What do we want out of a package manager? What are the requirements? 
Oh boy, there's a can of worms. Generally speaking, in fact, I'd go back and say that the requirements of package management do differ by what you want to do. But generally speaking, you've got to be able to bundle up something that is logical. You've got to be able to have that deployable in the logical verbs. You've got to be able to upgrade it. You've got to be able to delete it. You've got to be able to do those kinds of things. And typically, and one of the things that Helm didn't necessarily specify, you've got to be able to store those artifacts somewhere in a way that you trust and you can sign them, you know, ensure that you're doing the right thing, have some sort of dependency management, all of those kinds of things are involved. And then Helm specifically, what does Helm do? Helm is the easiest way to explain Helm, I find, for people who aren't familiar with it, is that is to take one step back into Kubernetes. And Kubernetes is not actually, at least the way I look at it, it's not really an application deployment system. It's a series of objects that implement particular features that you can use by configuring them correctly. And correctly here is in quotes. So if you know which objects enable which features, you can create a manifest in YAML and, and you can turn on or off and configure various features with certain artifacts like containers that allow them uh, one or more containers to function coherently as a logical unit. But Kubernetes itself doesn't understand a logical unit. It just does what you tell it to do, right? So Helm, then, is a way of breaking up those manifests, the Kubernetes, the raw unit uh, Kubernetes manifest, into logical chunks, first of all. So a deployment has one file instead of the deployment, the service, and the pods all being in the same file. A deployment has one file. Ingresses have one file, potentially secrets and so forth. It helps you sort of logically understand the composition of your service or services. So that's the first thing. And the second thing, and this is, we're talking about a Helm chart here, which is really sort of a set of these files. The second thing it does is it uses Go templating, although it's possible to plug in any other kind of templating, so that the core values that are important to you are in the top-level values.yaml file. And those values are then reused and inserted in the templates in, in the lower-level files. Ultimately, Helm just converts all those files into a manifest and gives that to Kubernetes and says, please make this happen. But it also stores logical information about your chart, your set of components that you wish to deploy into Kubernetes as release information. So with Helm, you can do things like roll back into a different release and roll forward and do upgrades at a logical level rather than as at a Kubernetes object level. Now, did that make sense? It does make sense. So a Helm chart consists of metadata and Kubernetes resource definitions, I think you would agree? Yes, that's, it should not be imagined that Helm charts are anything different than ultimately Kubernetes objects and uh, metadata about Kubernetes objects. So it's not as if you're doing something different. Helm just turns around, takes the information from the Helm chart and configures the appropriate objects, right? That's all it's doing. And so that's exactly right. Helm has three core concepts. There's the chart, which is a recipe that describes the metadata and the resource definitions, which you just said, these are the things that a Helm chart consists of. There's also the values, which are the user-supplied configuration. And then there is the release, which is the chart, together with the values that you supply. Say a little bit more about these core concepts. Well, so the, the chart itself is the, the package of files 
in a particular format. You can go to Kubernetes Helm and, and look at the chart documentation there if you'd like. The core files are, in fact, what I described earlier. They are the descriptions of the raw Kubernetes objects that will be configured. However, they have Go templating in there into which the values that you set, the user settings, as you said, such as you know things like how many copies of this container do I want to run? Do I want two to be running or do I want seven? Those kinds of things. What is the name of the service? What is the name? What are the names of the pods and so forth? Those kinds of things, whether ingress is enabled uh, and, so, and so forth, all those kinds of things will be injected into the charts when you invoke Helm and, and install. And the val- so that's what the values portion are. The releases are the logical structure for all of this working together. And so you can, for example, let's take a, a particular Helm chart for, say, PostgreSQL. So you can say Helm install PostgreSQL chart. And what will happen is that chart knows how to install PostgreSQL in a Kubernetes uh, cluster, wherever it is. It's not dependent on anything else other than having access to a cluster. It works over cube control. So that release is a logical entity. And if you delete the release, the release history is still there. So for example, you could try and install that same release again, and it will say, I'm sorry, we already have one. And in which case you just recreated, you, you would just recreate the history. But the nice thing about that is it allows you to go and do rollbacks to any particular previous release. And you can install multiple releases side by side with naming differences and so forth. There are wonderful projects out there and companies, you know, doing Helm chart management now to track dependencies and to do tests and automatic deployment. I can mention a few, but NAMI has a bunch of stuff that they've just, uh, they're sort of the Helm chart masters in many ways. Um, JFrog and CodeFresh and Weave. Uh, many others. So there are a bunch of tools to use to manage the kind of chart complexity. You can imagine if you think of Helm charts as being sort of the microservices approach or version of Yum or Apt or something like that, you're going to need some repositories in some ways to manage what gets installed, which, which doesn't. And those repositories along with Helm allow you to do that. And if I deploy Helm to my Kubernetes cluster, if I've got Kubernetes running and I decide i want this package manager on my Kubernetes cluster, because why wouldn't you? What happens if I deploy Helm? When I deploy it, what does it need to add to my Kubernetes cluster to be able to deploy to it? Well, Helm actually is a client-server architecture. And so when you deploy Helm, you do a Helm init. By default, what that does is it installs a server-side component called Tiller. And the default installation is insecure in the sense that it's global. The assumption was made when Helm was started, uh, Kubernetes didn't have a lot of complex security features such as RBAC and things like this. And even now, RBAC isn't mostly enabled by default, even though it should be. It's definitely the way to go. So at the time, the 2X, so I think we're at 2.9, 2.9.1, something like that, those versions of Helm install globally which is great for developers getting their work done and needing to install, say, PostgreSQL or any number of other services very, very rapidly so that they can do development against them. That works perfectly, but it works in a developer environment in which there's no particular threat to the network that you you know, might suspect. When you get to production, you don't really want to do that. You want to install Helm per namespace and you want to secure it uh, with TLS and configure it to uh, respect RBAC policies. And you can do that with the 2x version, but 
making that easier and turning on turning it on by default is one of the main goals of Helm 3.0, which is just kicked off. So there's a Helm client, as you said. Again, what are the responsibilities of the Helm client? Well, the Helm client actually just connects and calls and passes payloads to the tiller server component right now. And it passes those payloads through kube control. So it's all, you know, uh, secured. So that's, it's a very simple way of going about it. There's also libraries, you can go ahead and, and invoke the Helm API and build tools on top of Helm that do the work directly with Helm charts. There are several that do that, including uh, things like monocular, and I think landscaper and a couple others. So there, you can use it either way. Uh, most developers just use Helm because they just want to get something installed, you know, so it's basically pseudo apt install. And all of a sudden, they've got Postgres working so they can do their development or something like that. But in a professional environment, you, you're going to need other, other approaches to make sure things are secured and that developers get access only to the namespace they really want. As you said, there is this pod you get called a tiller when you deploy Helm to your Kubernetes cluster. What is the interaction between the Helm client and the tiller? So Tiller has basically two ways of going about it. There, there is a Tiller has a gRPC endpoint that the Helm client interacts with, and it's basically a client server. It just goes ahead and connects and passes the payloads and and uh, with the appropriate verbs. It's very simple. Okay, so now that we've given a, a little bit of an outline of the architecture, when I install a Helm chart, what is going on across my Kubernetes cluster? So what's going on across your Kubernetes cluster is that the Helm client, let's say you're going to use the Helm client, the Helm client is going to pass the artifacts to Tiller, and Tiller grinds that out into a Kubernetes manifest. That is, it applies the Go templating to the files that you've passed it, and goes ahead and converts it into native Kubernetes objects, and then it calls Kubernetes and says, please do these things, you know, create these services, uh, open up this ingress grab this container, give me that many copies, and so forth. If you're familiar with how Kubernetes works, it should be very un- easily understandable that it just turns around and, and, and gives Kubernetes the same commands you would do with kube control if you were doing everything manually. If you're not familiar with Kubernetes, it's basically doing, it's taking configuration information and telling Kubernetes, make this stuff happen. And there are a couple of, again, there are a couple of things. It, it does that as acting as tiller. So one of the goals, again, of 3.0 is to, we'll end up removing the client, the server side, as I understand the architecture now, so that the work is all done on the client side. And then when you do Helm and 3.0, you'll be acting as you in an RBAC system. And that'll be one of the big improvements that we're looking forward to. So let's say I deploy WordPress using Helm. I use WordPress. It has a database. If I wanted to deploy that to Kubernetes, I would get a database with my Helm install. So if I write to that database, if I create this WordPress instance and then I create a blog post on my WordPress instance running on Kubernetes, and then I do a Helm delete, let's say I did Helm delete to delete this WordPress instance, does that clear away all the resources? Does it clear away the database that I've um, created and written to? Oh, sure. If you're going to use delete, it absolutely would. So if you think about it, like in a microservices environment, I mean, WordPress is a fun example because sort of like the hello world of, of microservices. You obviously have a web front end and you, and you have a database in the back end. And so there are multiple services involved in that installation, right? 
So if you think of the multiple services as, quote, the logical application, there'll be a Helm chart that installs multiple services, where one of them is the database. Usually MySQL could be anything on the back end as a container in your in your application. If the Helm chart wants to deploy it in a different form, it can. But the basic default WordPress installation, which is at like if you have if you're new to this, you might look at cubeapps.com, which is a wonderful collection of, of curated um, charts to install things like WordPress. And it's a great place to sort of dork around with Helm and Kubernetes. So in those cases, there the logical release, the Helm chart actually deploys more than one service. If you delete that chart, you're going to delete all the services related to it. In try and because of course it's a microservice application, that means if you wish to, you can drop down to uh, Cube Control and delete the like one of the services out from underneath the Helm chart. Obviously, your larger logical application, the WordPress instance, would stop working properly. But the Helm chart is still deployed as a release. Then, if you wanted to get rid of everything, you would do a Helm delete and pass the the chart and the name, excuse me, just the name and that. And then if you want to delete the history, you'd pass a hyphen hyphen purge, which will get rid of any evidence in the, the uh, Helm release history that it was deployed in the first place. Once I've installed something to my Kubernetes cluster, like if I did install WordPress with Helm, how does Helm keep WordPress up to date? Um, actually, Helm itself doesn't keep WordPress up to date. It assumes that the release you gave it is the release you wanted in the cluster. And so in that sense, it's much like the sort of standard uh, yums, apps, and so forth that install what you want. But it's entirely possible that you can receive notifications or that you can go and check. Again, some of these Helm tools will do that for you and detect changes in shared Helm charts that you might use. For example, the WordPress one. If you go and install, uh, if you go and use a newer version of the WordPress Helm chart, that'll be a new release and that you can install both side-by-side version 1 and version 1.1 as you see fit since the charts themselves, the logical versions, will be different. So you could install many different versions side-by-side if you wanted. That, that's totally part of the, the way that, that it works. But, it's, but you're going to have to get another tool to notify you and or do automatic upgrading if that's something that you want. Some people like that, and especially in the developer and operation, you know, in the developer space and in the small business space, some things like, like those kinds of things are, are used commonly. Large organizations tend to not like surprising updates since as you get more complex Updates have interesting side effects that are sometimes not predicted. So it really is a choice of how you want to do your operations there. What are some applications of creating Helm charts within a company? If I'm running a startup, when would I want to create my own Helm charts? How would that be useful? So mm, that's an interesting question. I like it. Most people don't. Or, 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 Or is that not an application? Is that not something I would want to be doing? No, no, I actually like the question. Most people don't ask when you want Helm. And so there's a, we'll start with that first and then go into your sort of the details. That You want Helm when A, your developers are not terribly familiar with the Kubernetes objects yet, and you want to start developing against Kubernetes, against other things that Kubernetes, that can be installed in Kubernetes, like let's say databases and other applications, right? But 
Helm will get you started quickly by deploying those for you with public versions of those charts. That's a good example of when you want to do it. But the other time you want to use Helm is when you have mastered some degree of Kubernetes stuff. Let's imagine you're building original material now. So you've installed, used Helm to install a database and a couple of messaging queue uh, services and various other things that allow you to really focus on the application you want to build. And so now you've been building it, but you really didn't use Helm except to get those things up and running real quickly. So at some point, you get to a level where you think your service is actually running properly and you've been tweaking the knobs and so forth. And now what you want to do is allow other people to install it easily and quickly. And what you would want to do there is convert your manifests, assuming you were originally tweaking um, uh, Kubernetes YAML, manifest YAML, convert your manifest for your service into a Helm chart and then add the other services as chart dependencies. So for example, a Helm chart can specify other charts as dependencies. Once you do that, you can then create a Helm repository in public or in private, say if you're in a private environment, a large corporation or a governmental environment or whatever you might be uh, true of your case. But whether public or private, you can now give the URL to that repository, Helm chart repository to other people, and they can do a Helm repo add with the URL of that repository. And now they can Helm install your work in one command, including the dependent charts for the other services that your service requires in order to run correctly. So is it useful for recreating complex Kubernetes installations that are already deployed in one environment and you want to deploy them to a different environment, whether that that's a staging environment or a sandbox that's just for another developer? Yes, absolutely. In fact, any environment, because because Helm charts are, are used in precisely this way to deploy live to production as well, because of the relatively robust verbs for rollback, update, upgrade, release version differences, and so forth. In addition to which, the simple ability to do a Helm install, a one-line install, which pretty much anybody working in Linux or if you're on Mac, like brew install, for example, and things like this, that simplicity is just when you want people to use your software, you need to offer them that simplicity. And the problem with cube control, which is not a problem of Kubernetes, is just the way it, the way it works. The problem with cube control is there's too many magic strings going on. There's no particular logical entity tracking that Helm repositories give you along with the tooling that goes along with them. And so Helm becomes useful as soon as you want to make things easy for everybody to move faster. I want to move on to talking about Draft. Draft is a tool that simplifies the containerization of an application. Explain what Draft does and how I can use it. Okay, so we talked a lot about Helm and, and, and Manifest. Draft is interesting because it fits another niche in the, in the developer space. We talked a lot about uh, you have to have containers yeah, and Helm and, uh, needs to, and, and Kubernetes needs service composition for those containers. And there's a bunch of variables that have to do with how many of them you want and so forth. And the problem there is something you asked about in the beginning, which was what are the kind of the difficulties for developers? And one is... You, Really, most development is not done in containers. And this container thing is very, very hot, and it's hot for a good reason. But you got to remember that most people are still not doing containers yet. And most applications are not built to a microservices approach. And as we 
start embracing whether you're a younger developer trying to move quickly or whether you're a participate in a larger team that has applications you want to migrate to containers to take advantage of the benefits. You don't really want to spend all your time learning how to build containers or even worse, learning how to configure Kubernetes. It's not that you shouldn't. You should. Knowledge is good. These are just tools. But it turns out that getting started is every bit as important as it is mastering the tool set. And Draft is a tool that does two things, mainly. It's designed to detect the language you're working in and give you a basic container uh, Docker file, uh, container image uh, description, such that you don't have to do what most people do. You don't have to go out and Google the world after you built your app and go, oh my God, I'm using F Sharp in ASP.NET Core on Linux, and so how do I contain that? Most people don't actually know, and they just trust some image that they found on Google, and if it works, they think they've contained. Draft helps find a basic best practice for most of the languages and applies that and a Helm chart for that basic application to get you started right away and then allow you to augment those artifacts and check them into your uh, GitHub repo properly so that they can be used by everybody and be tracked according to the git commit hash along with your code. And that gives you a high degree of consistency. It lets you start doing uh, container native development right away against Kubernetes. And that's the first thing it does. A lot of words, I know, but uh, it's worth going on and and having a look at some of the demo videos and you get a, a feel for how easy that is. Indeed. And please continue. Oh, okay. So the problem with that is that those are only basic. That's getting started applications. And Hello World, we've got like Hello 10 language versions of the Hello World applications in the draft repo. And you can use those to get started building an application can, you know, as a service. There's a larger problem. And that is as your service development increases complexity, that is as you master what's going on and you connect to other services and things like this, you're going to be modifying your Helm charts you're going to be modifying uh, the container image to, for example, add environment variables and things like this. As you do that, those are things that we can't really detect because now you're building your custom application, right? Your special thing. In addition to which, it might be a private special thing about which we can know nothing and you don't want anybody else to know about it. And so the question becomes, how do you do that? How do you handle that environment? Because it's not just getting started. And the draft steps up here by giving you the concept of custom draft packs. You can create a repository with your, let's say you iterated on your your service and you worked on it and then installed it in a custom development or staging environment. There's some secrets in there that the real world shouldn't know. So what you might do is you take your application and you check it into a GitHub repo that's private. For example, the chart and Docker file that you built for that application can now be extracted into a private GitHub repo that it follows the draft pack format. And if it does, you can do the same thing with draft that you did with Helm. You can do draft repo pack add, specify your private repo or public repo if you wish to share your configuration with other people. And once you brought in that repo, you can now do a draft create with the pack option, and it'll bring in the precise configuration for that specific custom application so that you can actually blow away your machine. Or you can have some other developer come in to fix a bug, maybe on a, a service that you left, and they need to pick up with, the, with that precise service, and they can do it securely and instantly without having to master any configuration at all. 
They just do draft create and it brings in the right pack and they can start working by doing draft up. Uh, draft up does an interesting thing. It builds the container right there and deploys it into whatever or Kubernetes cluster so that you can begin testing it immediately as the artifact would ship rather than testing the code and then hoping you packaged it correctly. Right. So this is constantly syncing your laptop's code with the code that's deployed to your Kubernetes cluster. In a way, it's not really syncing. It is doing a forward motion. So for example, your local code is going to be built into an image. That image that your code built is going to be the one that's deployed by draft for you to test. If that test works correctly, then when you do a git push, your CI CD can actually pull that precise image, precise image, and deploy using the Helm chart into whether it's a staging service, a staging environment, or a production environment. So it's not really a, a, a synchronization act activity. It's actually using precisely the container that you have been testing against and developing against. And that's exactly what you want to do in container land. I'd love to keep talking about draft, but I want to get to brigade because I think there's a lot of depth there. So Kubernetes was built to manage resources for long-running applications, which I think is mostly what we've been skirting around the edges of here. When we're talking about developing applications, I think for the most part, we're talking about long-running applications if we're thinking about things like WordPress, for example. But it's also supposed to be used for short-term tasks. So I mean, if if you go back to the to the legacy of of Borg being developed, this was originally a system to be able to manage both Babysitter, which was the long running applications, and Global Work Queue, which was those short term tasks. And Brigade is focused on being able to manage these short term tasks. Give a few examples of short term tasks that you would want to run on a Kubernetes cluster. Actually, it's interesting. Brigade is one of my favorite tools. We built it because we needed it ourselves. And Brigade does both short-term tasks and long-term tasks. But the interesting thing is people tend to focus it. Brigade is a tool for developers and DevOps. The easiest way to talk about it is if a bash script is really a series of commands that pipe a standard out to standard in, where the next command is its own process and works on the previous process's data, Brigade is the same thing but using containers for the process and shared storage for the pipe. And as a result, you can actually use Brigade to build, set up, and run uh, complex structured pipelines, whether they're in parallel and you wait for all of them to complete or some portion of them to complete, or whether they're completely in series, one after the other, one after the other, reusing the data that had come before or bringing in new data. Brigade will do any of those things because it's basically scripted container pipelines in your cluster. Now, that's a very open-ended possibility. Here's where we get back to your question. In fact, the easiest demo for something like this is something like a git push occurs and I need to build the image and I need to stage it, for example. Standard CI, CD kind of activity. The only problem is that that's one example of the kind of thing that you were talking about. So Brigade can ha- has a container that, that acts as a GitHub uh, webhook listener. And so you can configure Git webhook events to trigger a request to the Brigade gateway. And Brigade will then kick off the scripted uh, container pipeline that you asked it to kick off. Now, the funky thing about that is that's an easy way to, to demo it. 
but it turns out it can do anything. So people often think of it as a CI to CD solution, but that is not what it is at all. It just turns out to be very useful for that. I'll give you a simple example. We were, I was at, um, let's see, we were at uh, KubeCon in Austin in December, and we had a customer who came up uh, who was working with satellite telemetry. And what they wanted to do was use, in this case, they happen to be Azure customers, but you can imagine any telemetry ingestion mechanism that a cloud provider absorbs. And they were using Azure Event Hubs to ingest telemetry data, but they weren't using Brigade on the back end to listen for telemetry ingestion. And each type of telemetry ingestion would kick off a series of Brigade scripts on the back end. So things like ETL work turn out to be extremely uh, easy to set up and, and maintain because they're just Kubernetes applications. Every Brigade pipeline, Brigade itself, is just a Helm install. There's a chart for it, right? And then every Brigade project is just a Helm install. There's a chart for that. And the setting up of whatever your structured pipeline is, is just a JavaScript file. JavaScript is easy because pretty much anybody can pick it up relatively rapidly and it's widely known already. So it just turns out to be easy. People ask us why we chose it and it's not any more complex than that. But basically you can do almost anything, chat ops, uh, ETL, long running processes, you know, just all kinds of things with Brigade. Personally, I think it's the geekiest, coolest, most useful tool we have, even though I think Draft is right in the wheelhouse of a service-oriented development. Okay, so I think I mischaracterized it, and that's because Brigade is a tool for running Kubernetes workflows, and when I read that definition, I think I associated with it something like oh, you want to do a MapReduce job, and then based on the result of the MapReduce job, maybe you want to run another MapReduce job, but ultimately these are going to have some finite life cycle, when in fact you're thinking of it in much broader terms where you have a collection of short-term, potentially a collection of short-term tasks and long-running tasks that together compose a workflow. For example, chat ops. If you wanted to do chat ops, you have to have these long-running event listeners for people saying, hey, Slackbot, kick off a CICD pipeline. And then in order to spin up that CICD pipeline, maybe your brigade workflow needs to spin up some shorter-term resources but you still are going to be needing to run those event listeners, the, the chat ops event listeners, as long-running resources. So encompassing both long-running and short-term tasks. It really is. You actually described it pretty well when you resummarized it. The fascinating thing about it is that it can encompass those things. Another thing that people ask me about uh, is because it's JavaScript, you basically say in JavaScript, you say, I'm listening for this event with this container that knows how to listen. And when I get that event, I want to do this thing with the payload, and I want to pass that data to this container, and I want that container to run. And then after that, so you just use JavaScript to structure your flow. But people think of it also as, well, isn't this sort of like serverless, you know, like OpenFAS or Kubeless or Fission or something, uh, you know, a functions as a service kind of thing. And the answer is yes and no. You could certainly use it to run one function, like there's no reason you couldn't. But it's really structured container workflow as a service rather than 
functions as a service. So yes, it is that flexible. You can kick off entire uh, long-running activity and you could just fire something and have it go away uh, once it's done, either one. It seems like you could compose it with those serverless systems because those serverless systems are really about being able to schedule resources in an opaque way. You know, you you just want to be able to to run functions without addressing the resource allocation and brigade is slightly higher level than that you know with brigade it seems like you want to be composing workflows among applications among long running applications and among short term applications and among any other thing that can respond to an event handler and you're not even thinking about the level of function so it seems like the serverless people are are actually operating at a little bit lower level of abstraction or I would actually say it at a higher level, but it really depends on your perspective, right? So let's take a sort of an application example, and then, then you tell me which one's higher and which one's lower level. Brigade not only manages, creates a container for you and, you know, runs the script and then returns the data and so forth, but it manages all the underlying resources in Kubernetes that you need. So if you need shared storage, it creates the PVC or it creates the other storage mechanism, say if you uh, were going to use a disk that was going to persist or some other database access. It'll manage that in Kubernetes for you, whereas you don't have to do that no matter where in the chain you are. So if we take an example, it would make complete sense to use functions as a service to kick off on based on some event uh, and then turn around and invoke a brigade pipeline from the functions as a service. In that brigade pipeline, it would make complete sense to also turn around and kick off individual relatively atomic functions as a service in the brigade pipeline as well. So if you had functions as a service calling brigade and brigade calling functions as a service, the only one that sort of manages the internal pipeline in a long-lived Kubernetes way is, is the middle layer, the brigade layer. So my question would be, which one is more abstract? I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, it's rhetorical, and you can tell that I'm smiling. It really doesn't matter, actually. The question is, which one is the tool you want to use? And, and they're both completely composable. You could trigger right. functions from brigade, brigade, and you could trigger brigade from functions. The question is, what works for you and what makes you agile and, and efficient? Do you think there will be some centralization around the serverless platforms or actually i think a better question is are people actually using these things outside of the the companies that are building serverless platforms or or like brigade for example like brigades is very exciting to me as a kind of software journalist but are are people using these within their companies or is it still like a little bit too early are people still just like getting their feet wet with kubernetes as opposed to figuring out workflows? Yeah, so the easy answer is yes and no. First of all, people are using serverless all over. It's super easy to do. And there are tons of short-term, event-driven, super easy jobs that people want just something to, to hook up and get going. And that that's absolutely happening, right? So feel good about that. I, I certainly do. It's just one more tool in the box to make the world easy. The problem with serverless is that it's important to realize that once you have something that's easy and small, you're going to use 5 million of them because they're easy and small. And then all of a sudden you're back to composition, which becomes a problem. So serverless doesn't have a composition approach. And that doesn't matter at some scale. And then at some scale, it will start to. 
Brigade has as part of it's naturally it's a workflow engine. So composition is part of its model. So in that sense, it sort of makes sense. What I would say also about Brigade specifically as opposed to serverless, which definitely is being used en masse or uh, certainly is in my uh, experience, is that Brigade, because it's so powerful and yet not serverless in a kind of an obvious way, we're seeing a lot of use in people who appreciate the functionality it brings. But I wouldn't say it's, you know, splashing the, the tech world on fire yet. I actually think it'll have longer legs in many cases than a lot of other things simply because of the power it brings. Indeed. And so that notion of the function as a service sprawl where you start to use lots and lots of them and maybe you don't really have a big picture view of where all the different places in your application are using different functions as a service, that would not occur as easily in Brigade, right? Because you have your atomic unit, or at least one of the atomic units is the workflow, which is a, a chunkier piece of functionality than than a function. Yeah, there is a fundamental problem. I'll, I'll sort of restate it because I love serverless because it's another tool and I get to use it for things that it helps me with, right? But composition is going to be a problem with serverless. And in addition to which, once you start running serverless, it builds by the second or microsecond or nanosecond or petasecond or some second. At some point, you're running a VM and running a whole VM becomes less expensive than being billed by the second and paying for all those, you know, standby VMs that actually are underlying the service. And so there is sort of a trade-off both kind of compositionally and also financially at some point, depending on what you're doing. And Brigade just turns out to run, do the composition by default. Remember, Brigade app is literally a configuration file and a JavaScript file, which means it's an application. You can debug it. You can walk through it. It's a structured program. And so right in that space where compositions start to become complex with serverless, Brigade starts to be Darned interesting. Darned interesting. Both of them have tremendous usage, uh, but in different ways. What are some of the other tools in the container ecosystem that are exciting to you? I'm a big fan of the concept. Okay, so there's a couple of things off the top of my head. I'm a big fan of the logical viewers that are out there. I use, for example, Weave Scope to see my logical uh, applications. There are several others that do a great job. There was a company uh, that got bought, they called Netsil, that did a great uh, layer three sort of examination of your cluster. And they got bought by somebody or amalgamated into somebody whose name I forget, which I feel bad about, but people can look it up. I like all of the developer tools that are coming out. Draft tries to tackle a very specific niche. I'm, I, I like it. I like where we're going with it. The other thing that we do and then I'll get to other companies as well, that we do is the Kubernetes extension for VS Code, which allows you to get out of the process of cube control for a bunch of basic tasks like exacting your pods or uh, opening a terminal and dorking around inside a pod when you're developing and so forth, something that's very, very common, but you can't stand cutting and pasting, among other things. So that's extremely useful. The YAML extension, which the Kubernetes extension that Red Hat did in VS Code is really, really valuable. And there's a bunch of others that are, are useful there, and that's for VS Code. Other tools I really, really like, other than the Scope and the Netsel one that was, I think Scaffold for from Google is a great way of doing things that is similar but not the same as, as Draft. 
I think the Jenkins X dev box thing is super, super interesting and useful. Oh, another thing that if, so Draft believes firmly in artifact as truth. And that's why we don't create a pod and sync our data into it. What we do is we actually create the container image from your code and you work with that actual artifact, right? As I said before, artifact is truth from the point of view of Draft. But there are other tools that give you slightly different experiences that are fantastic as well. I think Vaporware has this thing called K-Sync, if you don't know about it, which among other things, basically, you can set up a a container in a pod in Kubernetes and K-Sync will full duplex synchronize their files from local into the pod, which is a completely different way of going at it. But the experience is fantastic. You know, there's a possibility that your artifact is not exactly what you think it is when you go to into your DevOps work. But I think it'll be a wonderful experience for a lot of people. And we have a bunch of other tools coming up that I know about. Oh, uh, like a, there's a great debugger called Squash by Solo, I think, which involves basically a, a bunch of sidecar work and so forth. But it's a brilliant uh, experience as well. It's fantastic. And then they're doing fantastic, fantastic work. I think there's four or five others that are coming just from the KubeCon in Copenhagen that we we're at that I suspect are going to add to that ecosystem. And I think that right now that makes things a little complex for people, like which, which thing do I choose and so forth. And I get that, but it's early days. And later on, you know, all those tools are going to help us find the right way to do it for everybody. All right. I know we're up against time. So I think of serverless platforms as one of these things that we're are higher level applications that are being built on Kubernetes. And What I wonder is, what are the other distributed applications that you expect people to to build on top of Kubernetes in the near future, like databases or... I see a lot of stuff being built on Kubernetes because it's so flexible. So I'm very bullish on Kubernetes generally because of its flexibility. And it was built that way. And and I think that part of it is going to really be the thing that is fantastic. However... It turns out that there are some applications that don't really lend itself to that. I'm Kelsey Itar has been you know, sort of tweeting re- recently about the fact that he doesn't think you should do persistent data on Kubernetes. And I actually agree, not because you shouldn't or can't, because if you know you should and can, obviously you can go ahead and do it. And I think that's, you know, speaks to Kubernetes flexibility. However, highly available partitioning of data was always a hard problem. We just figured out after 20 years of VM experience how to do it in a kind of coherent and reasonably reliable way. Turning around and just making it containers because you can is just not really an intelligent use of your time from my point of view. So I'll put that out as a sort of a personal caveat, but I pretty much think that Kubernetes can run almost anything outside of that kind of thing, or maybe even should. There are always going to be environments where it doesn't make a lot of sense, but with other extensibility mechanisms, we haven't really talked about things like federation across cloud or uh, hybrid across private and public cloud, like in your own data center. Those are interesting scenarios that are going to come. Then there's things like disconnected scenarios where Kubernetes sort of assume the pod is either there or it's dead because I can't find it or the node, for example. But you have things like virtual kubelet, which uh, allows Kubernetes masters to think there's a node there and there may or may not be a node. It could be lazily created when Kubernetes wants it, for example. You can imagine that being used in um, IoT situations where 
the node, of course, is either not there or there, depending on what the device at the edge is doing. And Kubernetes just gets the information it needs to. So there's lots of interesting scenarios, quite above and beyond the sort of scale out end user app like Twitter or Uber, if that's your model. And I certainly think a lot of compute intensive stuff is going to fit and already has with uh, things like TensorFlow, ML workloads, and various other things, Spark and Kafka and all these kinds of things, which, by the way, are Helm charts. So if you want to install them with uh, one command line, you can just do Helm install Kafka. Indeed. Well, I think that's a good place to close. Ralph, I want to thank you for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been great to have you talk about such a variety of projects. Wow.